Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. On today's episode, we're going to dive into the energy crisis facing Europe and the recent actions taken by the UK government to stave off the worst of its effects. A higher reliance on Russian supply has put Europe in a particularly vulnerable position as winter approaches, with electricity prices soaring and an unprecedented risk of gas shortages. All of this and its consequences for consumer spending and business confidence has increased the likelihood of a near-term recession in Europe. Governments have been active in confronting this crisis, but with mixed results. UK markets have been at the epicentre of the action, with recent spending announcements triggering major volatility in both sterling and British government bonds, otherwise known as gilts. To shed some light on this situation and the outlook for Europe, I'm happy to be joined by my colleague Hugh Gimber, Global Market Strategist for our team based out of London. So Hugh, welcome to Insights Now. Thanks for having me. A number of recent events have sparked volatility in the UK's bond market and currency markets. However, before we get to these events, let's start with the main problem that Europe has been grappling with this year, the ongoing energy crisis. How did Europe get into this situation? So let me provide some context first of all. Going back over the past decade or so, Europe's dependency on Russian fossil fuels has been steadily increasing. So when we came into the start of this year, Europe was importing roughly 35 to 40 percent of its natural gas from Russia. And that really is because of the geography. Russia is a next door neighbor with ample supply of natural gas, and therefore it was cheap and efficient for Europe to build several pipelines linking it with Russia in order to receive those fuel supplies. This in hindsight created significant vulnerability because when we roll forward to February of this year and you saw that Russia's invasion of Ukraine sparked a number of sanctions from Western Europe against the Russian administration, Russia was left with a trump card in the form of its fossil fuel supplies. And so this is really what's been the, the, the big problem for the region over the past few months. Energy prices have spiked very, very sharply as a result of fears of supply disruption running from east to west. And therefore, you've seen a significant feed through impact in terms of the European economy. So talking about that, how has the energy crisis fed through to both European economic activity and inflation? And do you think that at this stage, a recession in Europe is a foregone conclusion? I don't think that a recession is a foregone conclusion, but I do think increasingly it's the base case. And let me break down how those impacts are feeding into the economy. I think there are two main ways. First of all, via corporates, and then second, via the consumer. So on the corporate side of things, this is really a story of a lack of competitiveness. When you look at the way in which natural gas prices have moved in Europe, take the sort of five-year average from prior to 2020, European corporates are paying roughly 15 euros per megawatt hour for their natural gas. This year, that average has been more like 150, 10 times the historical level of prices. And we even broke the 300 euro mark in particularly volatile trading over the summer. So if you're a European corporate and say you're competing against a US corporation, then life has suddenly become very tough because your input costs have absolutely skyrocketed. So we've seen this denting the industrial sector in particular. Uh, and you take a, a, an industry such as airline parts, for example, where you only have a few major players in the world, some in the US, some in Europe. 
And you see very clearly how that kind of disconnect starts to hurt European corporates, given that US um, competitors have a, a much more free-flowing domestic supply of natural gas to tap into that didn't see the same increase in prices. On the consumer side of things, this has really been twofold. One is a confidence hit. We see record low levels of consumer confidence across the continent today. And really the answer for why that's the case is due to household energy bills. If you look at the way that gas prices have impacted electricity prices, European households are going into this winter expecting far, far higher bills ahead. And therefore, they're starting to pull back on spending activity already. Do you think there's a real risk that Europe will actually run out of gas this winter? I think there is, but the story is mixed here. Let me give you the good news and the bad news. So in terms of the positives, Europe's done an excellent job of rebuilding its inventories of natural gas ahead of winter where demand really starts to pick up. So as Russian flows have halted, you've seen significant upticks in the supply of natural gas via LNG supplies, particularly coming from the US. And that's been helped by the fact that you've seen lockdowns in parts of Asia still due to COVID-19. And so international markets, where typically a lot of that gas would historically have been going to Asia, have been able to re-divert those supplies towards Europe. So the supply situation has improved thanks to those built-up inventories. But the problem here is that those inventories alone are not enough. Gas demand surges in winter, particularly as households start to use uh, heating much more aggressively. And therefore, you're still reliant on ongoing flows over the course of the winter. So we're going to have to see a reduction in demand this winter for Europe to not run out of gas. How much we need to reduce demand is going to depend on the weather. But even if we're looking at a fairly typical mild winter, you'd still expect to need to see about a 20% reduction in overall gas demand in order to avoid Europe having to um, constrain the, the supply of gas much, much more actively. So yes, I think the risk is real that Europe faces a, a shortage. It can be avoided, but if the winter is especially cold, then those risks look far more significant indeed. So... That's really a question of the you know the quantity of energy, but but of course the the price of energy is causing a sort of full blown cost of living crisis. But governments have responded pretty aggressively here. So what actions have European governments taken to uh, counteract the effect of energy prices on household budgets? Yes, yeah, so they've been very active indeed. You're absolutely right. The fiscal response has been very large. But let's be clear, it was going to fill a very large hole in the economy. And so governments really did need to act with force. What have they been doing? Well, examples include price caps for the level of energy bills that consumers will be facing this winter. There's been support for energy intensive industries. There's been more support for small businesses. It varies in different ways depending on which European country that you're looking at. But broadly, the scale of the response has been absolutely enormous. Germany is the latest country to have announced their support package for the winter. And you're looking at a cost of around about 200 billion euros or about 5% of GDP. 
So fiscal has been one arm. The other has been to try and reduce demand um, and taking measures such as controlling the level of heating in offices that's allowed, uh, restricting the way in which you can use lighting in adverts overnight. You can no longer use neon signs, you know, not um, too unreasonable, I think, to ask people to turn those off over the course of the winter nights. Other examples include turning down the temperatures of swimming pools or the water available in public buildings. So the demand side of things, they've been making marginal tweaks, but really the biggest impact has been through the fiscal arm. So, so all right, so I guess uh, for our European relatives, better send them sweaters this winter. Absolutely. It's, it's happening at an interesting time too, because of course, global central banks, including the European Central Bank, are supposed to be fighting inflation. Uh, how does this energy crisis and the government's support of households, how does that play into what the ECB is trying to do here? Yeah, it makes life very difficult for the ECB, frankly, because they're left with these two conflicting choices, frankly. Do you try and support growth via easier policy or do you try and control inflation via a tighter policy? And so far, they have been much, much more focused on the inflation risks. So we've already seen them hike interest rates twice. They first went from minus 0.5% to zero, uh, and then more recently from zero to 0.75%. So getting away from the negative rate situation, which has really plagued the European economy for close to a decade now. Looking forward, inflation is still heading upwards. We hit 10% just last week. Um, and whilst energy bills are a big portion of that, you still have core inflation running at close to 5 So against this backdrop, I think there'll be more to come from the ECB. They're priced to do about another 125 or so basis points of rate hikes between now and year end. And then markets are expecting a terminal rate somewhere in the region of about 2.5% in the middle of next summer. I think the bottom line is that the ECB is going to need a much clearer sign that the economy is weakening before they shift tack. Otherwise, more rate hikes to come and more aggressive communication. It still looks a little less hawkish than the Federal Reserve right now. Um, So, of course, if we could only get a, a ceasefire in Ukraine, that would obviously alleviate some of these issues. Do you think there's any end game in sight when it comes to Ukraine? I mean, first of all, we should stress, obviously, from a humanitarian perspective, everyone is hoping for a a swift and peaceful resolution to this. Um, But in terms of what we're seeing today, little sign of it so far, frankly. The the situation is effectively that Russia has taken control of several areas in the east and the south of Ukraine. uh, And Ukrainian forces are now making progress in reclaiming some of that ground. But there appears little appetite on either side to come to the table for negotiation talks at this stage. I think importantly, we've been very consistent with our message to clients throughout this year that you should not be making investment decisions based on a forecast of how the war is going to play out. This situation has been highly unpredictable and it continues to be so. Where I do think we can have more conviction is around the supply of fossil fuels. Because as I've explained, that's really the way in which this geopolitical issue becomes an economic one. And personally, I think it's quite hard to see a scenario where the flow of uh, fossil fuels from Russia to the West starts to accelerate again anytime soon. That covers both a lack of willingness for the West to buy Russian fossil fuels and a lack of willingness from Russia to be sending those supplies. And so at this stage, I think it would be foolish to be making investment decisions on the hopes of a, a swift resolution anytime soon. Okay. 
Well, obviously, we do. You know, the humanitarian crisis is the the worst part of this, and we, we you know, we do think about and and we are certainly trying to help the Ukrainians as much as possible here. Um, so let's focus more narrowly on your own home here. So the U.S. government has also announced a fiscal response, uh, but clearly based on subsequent market turmoil, uh, this didn't go too well. What did investors not like about the expansionary measures that were announced by Liz Truss's new government? Yeah, if I'd say we've had a bumpy couple of weeks in the UK, I, I think it's important to stress here that it wasn't only the energy package that was the problem. So in the UK, we've seen a price gap guarantee come through for households and businesses, the government effectively limiting um, the price that uh, people will pay for their energy over the next two years. But markets knew about this a few weeks ago, and that news was relatively well digested. The package was very large, again, somewhere in the region of five to six percentage points of UK GDP, but it was well understood by investors. I think you have to take this in the broader context of what else we've heard. So first of all, earlier in the month, you had a more tepid rate increase from the Bank of England than markets were expecting, delivering only 50 basis points of hikes at a time where their peers around the world were delivering 75 basis points or more. And then from the government, you had a whole host of other tax cuts that were wrapped up as part of a, a mini budget announcement. And so the energy package was part of that. But then on top, you had changes to income tax rates, you had a stamp duty change, and you had the abolition of the top rate of tax as well. Then to add to that, you had no costings provided by the Office for Budget Responsibility, equivalent to, say, the Congressional Budget Office in the US, who tend to mark the, the government's homework here in terms of the fiscal numbers. So this caused significant concern uh, really about the medium-term fiscal sustainability of the measures that the government were taking. And as a result, we saw significant risk premia being built in to both UK government bond markets and also the currency on a, a temporary basis. And of course, this, this does put the Bank of England in a particularly tricky spot. I mean, how they respond so far? And do you think the Bank of England can both support the currency and the gilt market while not adding to the inflation problem in the UK? Yeah, this is a hard one for the Bank of England. I think when you look at the medium-term implications of what the government is trying to achieve here, it's really going to boost the inflationary pressures in the economy through the course of 2023. Because let's be clear, the UK economy needs a period of slower growth in order to bring inflation back under control. And so boosting demand via tax cuts is only going to make uh, the life of the Bank of England harder in terms of trying to create that uh, slower period of economic growth. The challenge for the Bank of England last week, though, was that they hit a more immediate problem and that they saw that the very, very sharp increase in gilt yields was creating huge problems for uh, UK pension funds in particular, given the way that they hedge some of their liabilities. And so the bank felt forced last week to intervene in the gilt market and to offer to buy large amounts of long-dated UK government debt to try and control the spike in yields that we were seeing. So importantly, the bank was trying to be very clear in their communication to say this is not quantitative easing. This is not stimulus which is designed to juice the economy. Rather, it is just a short-term measure to try and ensure that markets are functioning properly. But I think the challenge for them going forward is how do you now walk that back 
how do you get away from that kind of intervention without leading to further spikes in yields? So the Bank of England's in a very difficult situation. I do think that they will be delivering significant rate hikes over the next couple of months. But I think that plans for their quantitative tightening program that was due to start um, basically now are probably likely to be shelved at this point because of the stress that's being placed on UK gilt markets. What do you think it would take for markets to calm down? Do you, do you think that the UK government can restore confidence? So we've already seen some signs of that this week. Uh, we had the first U-turn from the UK government where they decided that they would no longer be abolishing the, the top rate of tax. That 45% rate. Um, and it, it's this has been a really interesting one to follow because from a fiscal perspective, it's not very significant whatsoever. The total cost of the tax cuts is estimated to be somewhere around £45 billion. And the measures that they decided to scrap are only about £2 billion. So from a fiscal perspective, they're still looking at very, very large amounts of spending. But importantly for markets, it sent a very key political signal which was that the UK government is willing to listen to market pressure and isn't going to continue spending on an unchecked basis. They've also now committed to bringing forward that analysis from the OBR and presenting more of a medium-term plan for debt sustainability uh, later this month. So they are starting to move in the right direction. We've seen that coincide with more stable UK asset markets so far this week. But I do think that their actions are likely to lead international investors in particular to question their actions going forward. I think restoring confidence ultimately will take some time indeed. Do you think there are lessons for other policymakers in other regions from what we're seeing in the UK? That's a really interesting one. I mean, first of all, I think we can say that there is a limit to what the market will tolerate. We've seen you know, an experiment really from policymakers all around the world over the last couple of years where the response to economic weakness has been to open the checkbooks. We saw it through the course of 2020 uh, in response to the pandemic, and we've seen it again in Europe um, in very, very large size as a result of the energy crisis that we're facing. But I think the UK example is really the first one where the market has said, OK, we will not accept unchecked spending. This still has to fit into some kind of medium term plan. The other thing I think it's important to reflect on here is that the, the balance of power between monetary and fiscal policy is changing. So over the past decade, we've really become used to an environment where monetary policy has been doing its best to generate inflation. You look at the ECB's negative rate experiment as a great example of that. And yet fiscal policy generally has been doing little to help. You could say that monetary policy has been on the accelerator at a time where fiscal policy has been on the break with the rebuilding of, uh, of balance sheets post the financial crisis. Today, I think we face a very different situation where you now have fiscal policy on the accelerator and monetary policy trying to slow the economy down with its foot on the brake. So that, for me, could well lead to uh, quite significantly higher macro volatility over the coming years as we learn to live with this new balance. Well, of course, this podcast is all about investment opportunities. So, And we know that volatility does breed opportunities. So should investors take, think about taking advantage of some investment opportunities opened up by this volatility in European markets? Yeah, I mean, I think the opportunities are clearly still there. Let me highlight a, a couple of ways to look at this. First of all is in terms of valuations. 
So everything that I've described today, it may not be the cheeriest picture for the European outlook, but I do think that it's pretty well understood by markets now. And so when you look at the discount of European stocks, particularly relative to the US, we're basically back at global financial crisis type levels. So clearly for medium term investors, opportunities within the European stock market are starting to open up. The second one is from a currency perspective. We have a historically weak pound and euro relative to the US dollar. So again, a potential tailwind for US denominated uh, or US dollar denominated investors over the coming years. Uh, and then the third is slightly different. But I think that one of the medium term consequences of what we're seeing as a result of the war in Ukraine is an accelerated rollout of renewables to come. That, I think, is where governments are going to be placing their chips over the coming years, trying to reduce their dependency on Russian fossil fuels by ensuring that they have a really robust renewable energy source. And the good news for European stock markets is that they already play home to some of the world leading companies in renewable energy, be that wind power or solar power or some of the sort of nuts and bolts parts of the energy system that you need to make a more renewable reliant energy system work. So that, I think, is another potential tailwind as a result of what we're seeing today. Really interesting. So opportunity in cheap valuations in, in, in Europe, opportunity in very low currencies, both in, in sterling and the euro, and opportunity, long-term opportunity in renewable energy. Uh, in Europe uh, as uh, one of the consequences of this terrible Ukraine invasion. Listen, thank you for joining us, Hugh. And thank you all for listening. Please tune into our next episode when I'll be joined by David Leibovitz, global market strategist, for a conversation on the stock market and positioning as companies kick off the third quarter earnings season. Until then, I invite you to read or listen to my Notes in the Week Ahead podcast, where every Monday I share commentary on the latest on the markets and the economy to help you stay informed for the week ahead. For even more timely insights, you can follow and subscribe to my content on LinkedIn. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.